if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Well, welcome back to the podcast. My voice is mostly recovered, but not 100%. But still, I wanted to answer a question from a listener named John. He left it on the contact form on our website, consideringcatholicism.com. And I want to encourage you to go there. You can find all kinds of great stuff on the website. We've got all of the episodes categorized by topic. We've got videos there. There's contact forms, so you can use it like John. You can leave a review, and you can even support the podcast, which we greatly appreciate. So in any case, John left this question on the contact form, and let me read it here. He says, there are stories of the bad behavior of infamous popes. How can God's supreme representative on earth be immoral, corrupt, and fundamentally unchristlike? How does or can the church carry out God's will on earth when bad popes are at the helm? That's a great question, John, and I'm going to do my best to try to tackle it, but Really, I think there are several ideas or issues that are sort of at the root of this question, and I could probably break it up into multiple episodes. So I'm sure that over time, I'll come back and revisit the core concepts again and again. But way back, like a year and a half ago, I did do a couple of episodes that covered some of these issues. They were episode 38. The title of that episode was A Protestant Asks. Why do Catholics have a Pope? And then there was episode 39. The title of that one was More Protestant Questions About the Pope. Can the Pope just make stuff up? So if you're interested in my thoughts on the papacy and all of that and how to answer Protestants about it, Go back and listen to those, episodes 38 and 39. Uh, I'll put the links in the show notes, the episode description for everyone. But here's how I'd like to respond to John's question for today. So if you go to Rome and visit the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls, that's where the Apostle St. Paul is buried, and stand in the central nave of the church and look up, you'll see portraits of all of the popes going back to St. Peter. They're in a line, starting on the right side of the apse and then running along the top of the wall, right where it meets the ceiling, these circular paintings. And then it wraps all the way around the inside of the church. Now, obviously, many of these paintings are speculative because the painters who did them don't have photos of Peter and the most ancient popes. But probably beyond a certain point in the late Middle Ages and into the Renaissance, there were official portraits of popes done. So I I suppose that those, you know, are accurate, look like what they look like. But anyway, it's an amazing place to stand right there by the tomb of St. Paul and look up and see this endless line of succession from Peter down to today with Pope Francis and to realize that 
Christ has provided for his church by providing these stewards one after another after another in a line. So from Peter to Francis, the church recognizes 266 popes over the last 2,000 years. So that works out to be about an average term of seven and a half years. So what can we say about these 266 popes? Were they all good popes? Were there bad popes? Well, I suppose that if we rated them and plotted that on a chart, it would form a bell curve. So there were some great popes at the high end of the bell curve. And there were some pretty bad ones, some scoundrels at the bottom end of the bell curve. And probably most fell into the center of the bell curve, and we'd call them average popes. But I I think the question is, is how would we rate them on their personal piety, their, you know, theological acumen, their IQ, their leadership skills, the quality of their decision making, the effectiveness of their policies? Because as you can imagine, any individual pope's position on that theoretical bell curve depends on how you evaluate him or what you're evaluating him on. So there have been popes who were great men of prayer or great intellectuals who were pretty ineffective leaders and couldn't handle the administrative and the political demands of the job, especially in a time of crisis of their day or whatever. And truthfully, there were a few that were personally scoundrels, you know, think mistresses and such, but who had the skill set to protect the church from hostile takeovers and bankruptcy and sort of kept the trains running on time in difficult eras. Now, there were popes that had good intentions, but made strategic blunders in their policies. There were popes that schemed to promote their pet projects or their own reputations, but they ended up building the church up. There were popes that recognized and supported various saints, and there were some who had to be confronted by various saints and, you know, sort of prodded to do the right thing. Let me give you just one example out of those 266. Julius II was pope for 10 years between 1503 and 1513. Now, even at the time, he had these uh, unflattering nicknames. People called him the warrior pope or the battle pope or the fearsome pope because he often rode around on a horse with armor and he fought wars around central Italy. In fact, he chose his papal name in honor of Julius Caesar because he wanted to be the Caesar of popes. Now, when Julius became pope, the church was financially broke. It was politically weak. And it was militarily vulnerable, meaning that all around Europe, churches and cathedrals and convents and colleges were really at risk of being seized or burned or destroyed. And the city of Rome itself had become this broken down slum, literally, run by what were essentially organized crime families, mafias. And they pulled the strings of weak popes, they ran the city's churches, and they preyed on vulnerable pilgrims that came to Rome to visit the holy sites or whatnot. And so, when Julius II became Pope, he set out to restore the prestige and power of the papacy. And 
to make Rome a beautiful city, the center of a restored Roman Catholic church, a beacon of faith to the world? What were his motives? Some combination of ego and ambition and worldly instinct for power and glory. And, and, you know, maybe he did really genuinely care about the church. But that's what he set out to do. Now, once he did, among his many controversial decisions as Pope, and let me tell you, there were many of those, he unilaterally announced that he was going to tear down St. Peter's Basilica which at that point had stood for 1,200 years, and begin building this newer, bigger, better version with a massive monument to himself in the center of it. And to make sure that it would be unlike anything else on earth, he decided to essentially kidnap and force the greatest artist in Italy, or the world, Michelangelo, to paint the ceiling of the papal chapel, the Sistine Chapel. And so, when Julius II died in 1513, Rome was being restored. The papacy controlled the city, not the gangs. The new St. Peter's Basilica, the one that we know today, was rising over the rooftops. Michelangelo's Pietà and the Sistine Chapel frescoes were displayed as sublime works of transcendent beauty. The church was fiscally solid. And so, four years later, When the Protestant Reformation began and Germany and England and parts of Northern Europe were in open rebellion, the church had enough gas in its tank, physically, financially, and spiritually, to survive that storm. So if there had been no pontificate of Julius II, with all of his ambition and ego and ruthless pursuit of papal prestige— You have to wonder, would the church have shattered like Humpty Dumpty into a thousand pieces like the Protestant world today? If you ever go to Rome and wander through St. Peter's, looking up in awe at Michelangelo's dome and the frescoes in the Sistine Chapel and kneeling and weeping in awe at the Pietà, take a moment to think, this almost didn't happen. It wouldn't have happened without Pope Julius II's rather complicated personality and methods. So, was Julius II a bad pope? Where would we put him on that bell curve? Well, probably near the bottom end for his personal piety, his prayer life, and his Christian temperament. But when we look at his impact on history and the legacy of the church... Probably near the high end. You know, historians often say that you can't judge a papacy until at least a hundred years has passed and you see how all of the consequences of that Pope's words and actions have sort of played out in history. But here are five things that I think we can say for certain. First, at the Last Supper, the first Pope, St. Peter, boasted that he would stand with Jesus longer and stronger than anyone. And then, like an hour later, he fell asleep when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, when the men show up to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of the one of the men trying to arrest him. But then, a couple of hours after that, he denied three times that he even knew Jesus. Then, decades later, 
when the emperor Nero ordered him to be crucified in order to mock his faith in Jesus? Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. The first pope definitely had his good moments and his bad moments, but he finished well. So let's keep our expectations in check and not be too quick to judge any pope's relationship with Christ. Second, we are to respect the office of the papacy even when it is occupied by someone that we would rate low on the bell curve according to whatever criteria we're using. The church is not led by Julius II or Francis or whatever. It's led by Christ through his steward, who's the current successor of Peter, and we must respect that office. We're obligated to respect that office. It is our duty to respect that office. Third, whoever he is, he is the Holy Father. And like our earthly fathers, he is a man with strengths and weaknesses. Just as our earthly father is still our father, even when he fails or is unfair or seems unsteady, so the Holy Father is still the father of the visible church. I may disagree with my dad. I may get frustrated with my dad. I may find my dad infuriating at times, but he's still my dad. And he is still the father of our family. And I will respect him as such. He can't not be the father of our family, right? It's who he is ontologically. And so I need to respect him and pray for him and do my best to be a faithful son. Fourth thought. Christ promised that the gates of hell could not withstand his church. And that in the end, through endless trials and tribulations, the church would prevail. Christ will protect his church and us, even from the occasional pope at the bottom end of that bell curve. And finally, while it's fair to have opinions about popes, our priority is to control what we can and pray about what we cannot. None of us have any control over the personal or the public behavior of a pope. What we do have control over is our own behavior, our own words, our own hearts, our own prayer lives, our own participation in the sacraments, our own service to Christ. Because when he returns and sorts out the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, it's none of my business how this or that pope came out in the sorting. But my job, your job, is to do our best to become saints. So, yeah, John, thanks for writing. I don't know if I completely addressed your question, but Protestants are going to go on and on about this or that bad pope and, and use that as some sort of proof against Catholicism. Yep, some popes could have been better for sure. But having spent most of my career in Protestant ministry, I can tell you the same thing can be said of Protestant leaders, pastors, theologians, missionaries, whatever. As for me... I've decided to trust the words of Christ when he said, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not withstand it. 
So anyway, John, thanks for writing in. Thanks to all of you for listening. If any of you have questions or comments, please, please, please go to the website like John did, consideringcatholicism.com. You can post a comment or a question there, or you can just email me, consideringcatholicism at gmail.com with your comment or your question. A couple of things. Would you please, please, please leave a review and a rating for the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, but you can also do that at the website. It really helps us to rise in the algorithms and get more visibility, and we are trying to build up the audience. That means a lot. And go to the website, check it out, and check out the other episodes. Go to our YouTube channel, please. Check out the YouTube videos, like those, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and would you prayerfully consider supporting the podcast so that we can not only keep this going, but expand it. And God bless and send us your questions. I look forward to answering more soon.